Well, good morning. It's been a while since since I've been here, since Ash and I have been here. We've actually, uh, I guess it's been three weeks since we've been here, just a number of different things, young adult, up at the cabin a couple times, so it's good to be back. It's good to be back. Uh, we were, I was actually wondering if the chairs were still going to be set up this way <laughs> yeah, for morning meeting, and they were. Um, well, we're going to be looking at a new book of the Bible. We're going to be going for five or six weeks, and I'm not too sure just yet, uh, but we're going to be doing a little bit of a series um, in, in God's Word. I heard a quote from John Piper recently that said, the gospel teaches us how to live, but it also rescues us when we fail to live the way we are supposed to. And I'll just read that one more time. The gospel teaches us how to live, but it also rescues us when we fail to live the way we are supposed to. He, of course, means that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, but he's also referring to the cleansing nature of the gospel in the Christian's life. How by looking at it, by studying the gospel, and just looking at it, we can be restored and refreshed completely. This past summer has perhaps been one of the most spiritually dry summers of my life, and I don't say that lightly. Things at work, uh, there was some stuff going on at work, and just a couple things in my personal life, you throw those together in a blender, um, and that was, that was my summer. Everything just seemed to collide all at once, and I began to feel empty. And after spending time with some of my closest friends these past couple weekends, I've realized that I'm not alone in that. And I'm sure each of you, I don't know where everybody is at specifically, but I'm sure everyone can relate to that. Periods where, you know, our Christian walk just isn't going so well. And maybe we're just, we're living our lives and everything seems okay, but spiritually we're just kind of weak and faltering. I'm sure everyone here can relate to that. So I don't know where you are at right now, but I'm sure everyone can relate. And the temptation is to live a normal earthly life, isn't it? That's the temptation to just sort of live our lives and just put cruise control on and just wake up in the morning, go to work, come back home, make supper, eat, spend some time with, with our spouses, with our family, you know, maybe turn something on at the TV, then go to sleep and rinse and repeat day after day after day after day. That's a temptation, isn't it? to just live our lives and sort of be stuck in this, this rut, as it were, but just not do anything about it. That's the temptation. The temptation is to just continue living the way the rest of the world lives. It's a temptation that I fall into um, fairly often. And this is why that quote had such a profound effect on me when I read it, the gospel teaches us how to live, but it also rescues us when we fail to live the way we are supposed to. The gospel is the key to living a Christ-filled life. Yes, it, it seems simple and, and, and it's easy to state that, but the gospel is the key to living a Christ-filled life. It's the key. Christ solely is the answer. Now, I say this almost every single time that I speak, but Christ is it. Christ is everything. And so we're going to be looking at Christ today, and that's going to be the focus of this study. 
One verse that was a constant prayer of mine over this, this summer was Psalm 119, verse 107, and it says, I am afflicted, and the word there can literally be translated, I am depressed or I am looking down. I am looking down. I am afflicted very much. I am afflicted to the point that I can't move. That's what that passage literally means. But the psalmist doesn't leave it there. What does he say? He says, quicken, or you could translate it, revive me, O Lord. He pleads with the Lord, revive me, O Lord. How? According to your word. You see, it's the gospel that sets us free, not only for salvation in coming to Christ, but in restoring us daily, in giving us peace daily. It's the gospel. It is Christ. And I was sort of caught up in this thought of needing to fix every individual thing that was going on. Putting out a fire here, fire would spring up here, and putting that and concentrating on different things, when in fact all I should have been doing is looking at Christ. It's looking at Christ. So what does that mean for you? Well, we're going to, be, we're going to spend our time looking at one of the most Christ-centered books in the entire Bible the book of Colossians. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. In fact, the entire book of Colossians can be summed up in one simple verse, and I know that we, know, we all know it very well. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That sums up this entire book Perfectly. If ye then be raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if you've been saved, what are you to do? To seek Christ. You see, the moment we come, the moment that we are saved, we still have a lot more to learn about Christ. And there's so much more that we can learn, so much more that we can fall in love with him. It's not just a one-time deal. Yes, we are saved and we are secured by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit when we come to Christ. But for the rest of our lives and truly for the rest of eternity, we're drawn closer to Christ. So if ye then, if you have been raised with Christ, if you are saved, Seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And that sums up this entire book perfectly. Flip back to Colossians chapter 1. We'll just go and read the chapter in its entirety. Colossians chapter 1, reading from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, 
From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So that's chapter 1 of Colossians. You can see there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And we'll be unpacking it over the the coming weeks. But just a little history on the church at Colossae and the city itself. Uh, We don't know when exactly the city was founded, but we do know that it was around during the reign of a Persian king called Xerxes. If you remember, we did a study in the book of Esther, uh, Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. It's the same king. By 400 AD, roughly 370 years or so after Christ, Colossae no longer existed. So we have, it was around, it was there around 486 BC uh, to 464, I believe, was Xerxes' reign. Somewhere around there, BC. And then we have it going out of existence around 400 AD. It's located in an area known as Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, um, for reference sake. It was an area very well known for earthquakes. In fact, Laodicea is a city just 10 10 kilometers or 20 kilometers uh, west uh, of Colossae. And Laodicea was destroyed multiple times 
Uh, it was completely leveled by earthquakes, but the citizens themselves actually paid for the city to be repaired and didn't ask for any money from Rome. Uh, they, were, they were well off. And we see this come up actually uh, in the book of Revelation in the letter to Laodicea. It says, you think you're rich, you're puffed up. Why? They were able to rebuild their entire city with their own money. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment. Um, but they sort of took on that identity of being, well, we're rich, we're, we're wealthy. So Laodicea is in that region as well. There's three main cities, so Colossae is one of them, Laodicea and Herapolis. Colossae was known for its cold, pure water. Herapolis was known for its hot springs. And Laodicea, right in the middle, well, that had lukewarm water. Remember Revelation? Christ says that I want to spew you out of my mouth because you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. You're just sort of living a puffed-up Christian life saying that, well, every, you know, we're good, we're okay. But he says you're blind to the fact that you are puffed up, that you are prideful, that you've got things going on that shouldn't be. <laughs> And so it's just very interesting that geologically, or geographically, they had lukewarm water. They knew exactly what Christ was talking about. They knew exactly. Colossae was destroyed uh, in the 8060s due to an earthquake, and they too rebuilt without the support of Rome. So this entire region, as it were, uh, had the money to sustain themselves uh, without Rome's help. It was roughly 160 kilometers east of Ephesus and 20 kilometers east of Laodicea. So Ephesus sitting, if this is Turkey, Ephesus is sitting right. It's a port city. Um, here's this, the sea over here. Laodicea is on the other side, about 160 or so kilometers, 162 kilometers east of, of Ephesus. Now, as a Gentile city, um, but the estimates for the number of Jews in the area, and that's all three city regions, was about 50,000 Jews. That's quite a few. Uh, so there was a large um, Gentile population and a sizable Jewish population as well. Um, and they know that because of the amount of taxes that were going from, uh, from these cities down to Jeru Jerusalem. And they just estimate the, the amount that was going to Jerusalem and figure out about 50,000 Jews lived in this region. Uh, so it's quite a sizable number of Jews. Now, how was this church formed? Paul's third missionary journey took him to Ephesus. And Ephesus, as we know, uh, was a major and a significant city in Asia Minor. During his time in that region, he never visited Colossae as far as we know. However, people from all over visited Paul in Ephesus. And during those three years, the church in Ephesus was formed, and all of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 were formed as well. Each one was an expansion of the work that Paul was engaged in, so we can see just how much the gospel was spreading. And you can read about the expansion of the gospel in the book of Acts, and specifically Acts chapter 19, verse 10, where it says that everyone who dwelt in Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. It's really fascinating stuff, and I like studying the early church and just seeing the expansion and the explosion uh, that was going on at that time. And actually, in chapter 1 of Colossians, it mentions how the gospel has spread to the whole world, it mentions in, in verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. 
It's been roughly 30 years since Christ's death and resurrection, and already uh, the gospel has spread from Jerusalem into Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, Egypt, North Africa, and parts of Persia. It's kind of hard to believe that much and that fast and that short of period of time that the gospel spread that much. I mean, we struggle to reach one city, and they had several continents that the gospel was spreading to and touching. It's fascinating stuff. And it's exciting to read uh, what went on then. A number of people came from Colossae to visit Paul while he was teaching in Ephesus. Epaphras, Philemon, Epiphia, Archippus. But perhaps the most significant person was Epaphras. And Colossians uh, chapter 4 verse 12 introduces us to him if you just turn there. It's actually mentioned earlier in, uh, in this book, but... Colossians 4, verse 12. And it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So we see Epaphras. He was from Colossae. He is one of you, it mentions. He's from Colossae. And he had been used to found all three churches in that area. Now, Paul, after being in Ephesus for three years, he would later go on to Jerusalem. We know what happened there. He was arrested, taken into custody. He pleaded his case to Caesar, and he was later shipped to Rome. While in Rome, he had certain privileges as being a prisoner. He could accept visitors, and he often did. Um, and you can read in the book of Philemon how I mean, he preached the gospel while he was, while he was in prison. The people chained up to him, they would understand, fully know what the gospel was, and Paul would never stop preaching the gospel, and it would go to Caesar's palace, and the gospel would spread there. I mean, so it's fascinating stuff that you see the Lord working in amongst the people. And so from Colossae, we have Epaphras coming, meeting with, with Paul. And so Epaphras, uh, we see, was moved because of issues that were rising up in the church that he attended, in one of the churches that he founded. And he brings those concerns to Paul as a point of prayer, but also a point of guidance. He's seeking Paul's guidance here, and we'll see that a little bit later. So let's go back to Colossians chapter 1, and let's start in this chapter. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. There's four points that, that Paul mentions in this opening greeting. Now, Paul always begins a book by greeting those who he's writing to. So first of all, who's the writer of this book? Well, it's Paul. Paul and he goes on to say, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and so just in case you don't think that that it's the Lord's work and not mine, he adds, by the will of God. That it's God who has called me to this ministry. Paul always brings it back to the source. He always brings it back to God. I love that about Paul. Point two, who else is with him? Paul often mentions who is with him at the time of him writing a letter. And in this case, it's Timothy, our brother. We might get into a little bit about Timothy later on. Point three, who is this intended for? 
In verse 2, it says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but to the saints. And then he adds, and faithful brothers. I want you to ponder that and think about that and what that means. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Okay, who should read this? The Christians at Colossae. Christians at Colossae. That's the intended audience. But we read a little later on, near the end of this book, it also says, take this letter and pass it off to Laodicea. I want them to read it too. And he actually says, I want you to do a letter swap. So I'm sending a letter to Laodicea. You're going to read the letter that I send them, and they're going to read this letter that I sent you. So this is for the entire region to read, not just the saints at Colossae. And number four, the greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Again, Paul always bringing, bringing it back to what is truly important. It's always all about God and Christ. Now, there's one specific thing that we have to understand in order to get to the meaning of this book. What was Epaphras concerned about? I mean, this guy travels some 2,000 kilometers to visit with Paul. Was his purpose to get a glowing letter and recommendation from Paul? I don't think so. Paul doesn't do that. That's not his style. So what was Epaphras' purpose in coming to Paul? Clearly, he was seeking Paul's wisdom and his instruction. And you can read through the entire book of Colossians. And I, and I encourage you, as we're going to be studying this, read it at least two times a week. It doesn't take very long to read this, this book of the Bible. Read it two times this week, leading into next week's message. Just to get your bearings and understand the flow of this book. But so what was Epaphras' goal here? Paul begins or quickly begins in this letter by mentioning words like walking, pleasing, bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, strengthened endurance, walk in him. All clear signs, all clear signs of what Epaphras came to Paul for. And it's not until chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 8, that we see the root of the problem. And it says there that there was philosophy and empty deceit. Let's just turn there for a second. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there are people in the church attempting to teach something contrary to the gospel of Christ. And they're adding stuff to it. So it's Christ plus Knowledge, Christ plus works. And we see both sides of those in this, this heresy, this, these issues going on here. However, I want, to, I want you to see the language in this book, or in this, in this verse. See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you. So it hasn't fully grasped or taken hold of the believers at this church. There was a danger and an immediate threat of it taking place. And what's interesting is Epaphras didn't wait for his church to become ruined in order to seek help. Epaphras noticed that something was going on in the church, and he immediately sought guidance from Paul. You know, it's, there's been many a church that has split and been ripped apart 
And that stuff doesn't happen all of a sudden out of nowhere and everybody's blindsided by it. Things take root and they begin to grow and fester. Epaphras is a man who sought the will of God. And he says, there's something here that doesn't jive with the gospel of Christ. And so he immediately seeks wisdom and guidance. I mean, he has this long journey, and it's weighing heavy on his heart. And we can read in Colossians 4 how it did weigh heavy on his heart, that he was struggling with it. He was very concerned for the saints. He had a pastoral heart. And it's amazing to see those in, in our congregation who have a pastoral heart learn and read about Epaphras. Study him. He's a wonderful character to study. There's not too much about him, but it's a wonderful study looking at him and his pastoral heart. So what was this heresy? What was going on in this church? It says, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Okay, well, what was it? Drop down to verse 18 of chapter 2. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, for whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in this verse, or in these verses, and we'll get into it in detail in the coming weeks. But a brief synopsis of it is this. There were those who were saying that Jesus Christ is not enough for salvation. I've already mentioned it, but Jesus Christ plus knowledge, Jesus Christ plus works equals salvation. A little bit more, Christ isn't enough. In verse 8, we've already read it, part 1 of this, this heresy, that philosophy and empty deceit. Okay, so the Greeks loved philosophy, they loved knowledge, they loved attaining it. And they're sort of introducing those ideologies into this church and saying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, that's great, but I need to know more. You need to know more in order to be saved. So a lot of stuff is going on. And Paul essentially says, don't let anyone take you captive by this foolishness. Christ is enough. It's all about Christ. It's never going to be Christ plus something else. It's only about Christ. Now, what was the root of all of this? Why was this being introduced into the church? These philosophies and visions were essentially attacking the deity of Christ. At the root of it all was an attack by Satan to discredit Christ. And that's why you see Paul drive home this point that Christ is enough, that Christ is sufficient. And it underlines everything that Paul is saying throughout this Throughout this book, Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1:27, Christ is what? The hope of glory, that he is it. Colossians 1 verse 28, every man can be made perfect or mature in Christ. That Christ is the one who does that, not man. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you don't need any more knowledge. You don't need any more wisdom apart from Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ is God. Colossians 2, verse 19, Christ is the head of the church. He's the focus. And I could go on, and there's a multitude of passages within the book of Colossians, but I think you get the picture. 
Christ is sufficient. If you want three words to define this book, that's it. Christ is sufficient. If you want three words to define your life, repeat them daily. Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. You don't need to be circumcised like some people in Colossae were saying in chapter 2, verse 11. The Christ plus works equals salvation. You don't need more knowledge or more wisdom like some were saying, the... Uh, the Greek influence, that Christ plus knowledge equals salvation. No, Christ is sufficient for my needs, for everything. If you notice, Paul never directly attacks the heresy in this book. And by that I mean he says, he never says, well, if they say this, you say this in rebuttal. If they do this, you do this in rebuttal. Here's your list of points that you just take this piece of paper and when they bring up things, just start drilling down point by point by point. Now what does Paul do? He says, don't mind that, look at Christ. And by looking at Christ, he deals with this. Because you see, it's Christ who fixes it, not us. We get into this sort of mentality that we need to fix things and guys, we're really like that. I know our wives... Our wives probably see that in us. Guys generally have to fix everything. You know, I know the best way to fix this or get out of this, and we sort of put on a construction hat and try and fix issues, whether they're in our marriage or just in life in general. It seems to be the more I talk to, uh, to guys, the more it seems that that's the norm. But we're not to do that here. We're to look at Christ. We're to look at Christ, and he is the one that fixes he is the one that changes. He's the one that does the transformation. It's not us. It's him. And that's what Paul's getting at here. And that's why I love this book. He points them to Christ. If you are so completely caught up with Christ, then there is no room for anything else. If you are so caught up with who Christ is and what he has done, then there's no room for anything. There's no room for thoughts like this. And that's why it says we're to be filled. We're to be filled, what, with Christ? That leaves no room for anything else. Leaves no room for anything else. John Piper, another quote from him, I had just been reading a, several sermons that, that he had preached in the last couple weeks. But he says the problem with the church today isn't that believers are sold out for Christ. The problem in the church isn't that we read our Bibles too much. The problem in the church is that Christians read their Bibles for 10 minutes, then go spend half of the day making money, the other half of the day spending that money and repairing what was broken by spending that money. He says that's the problem with the church. It's not that we're sold out for Christ. It's not that we're reading our Bible too much. It's that we don't. It's that we're not living fully the, the Christian life that we've been called to live. But Paul here, and we're going to go through it, through this, this entire book, and I love this book, because Paul just continually says, look at Christ. Don't worry about anything else. Look at him. He'll fix the problems. You don't have joy right now? Look at Christ and he'll give you joy. 
It seems like the world around you is just blowing up. Look at Christ. He is the goal. It's not this world. It's not this life. Christ is the goal. Christ, we're to run the race. Looking forward to that day when we'll see him face to face. That's what we're to do. And so this book, it covers all aspects of the, of the Christian life. Christ is the object of the believer's faith, the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the reconciler of all things, the savior of mankind, the source of all wisdom and knowledge, the victor over sin and Satan, the pattern for the life of the Christian faith. This book has it all. And we're going to unpack it. And we're going to learn it. And we're going to memorize it. We're going to study it. And we're going to treasure it and hide it in our hearts. It shows us the world and the way in which we used to walk. This book spends a, a portion of its time, Paul spends a portion of his time looking at the pattern of the world and that we used to be part of it, that we're not anymore. <laughs> but it also shows us our escape is in Christ. Again, that it's all about Christ. There are instructions to new believers, grown believers, families, servants, workers, leaders. It's all here. This is a packed book with biblical truth pointing us to Christ. And it all comes back to the verse that we started with, Colossians 3.1, If ye then be raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to open up your word and we realize we only scratched the surface of this wonderful book but we thank you that the focus of it is Christ. Might that be the song of our hearts and our lives. Might we, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, when we stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but when we stand before our Savior, might we not be ashamed of the lives that we have lived. But might we boldly stand before him and say, I have run the race. I finished. I finished the race. I'm done. I've been spent. Father, we pray that you might teach us what it means to live lives for you and for your glory. We pray that as we unpack this marvelous book of Scripture, we pray that we might learn from it, that we might treasure it in our hearts, that we might look skyward, that we might look heavenward, that we might look and see you. And might our joy, our peace, our rest, our satisfaction be found in you and you alone. So, Father, we thank you for this time that we've opened up your word. Might you continue to do a work in each one of our lives as we leave this place. Might the name of Christ be on our foreheads. Might the name of Christ be in our hearts, on our minds, day in and day out. Might we always be thinking about him and giving thanks for the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Father, we thank you for him and for all that he has done. And we pray in the name of him, our Lord Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.